Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hi, it's Kim and Phil with you delivering our episode on Palau. It's a, a small country in the Pacific, and in this episode, we explore the island with Stephen, who had a real Robinson Crusoe adventure. I love this. This is the way I like to travel. We'll learn about the Palau Pledge and hear from Kate, who has created a pledge of her own after what really is the... Well, <laughs> when anyone dies, it's a tragic loss, but yeah. this was didn't need to be. Yep. And you'll hear about that. She was uh, travelling at the time. But tell us more about Palau, Phil. All right. Well, it's not just one island. It's a chain of islands. Many of them are actually not a lot more than just a limestone outcrop, you know, with a bit of jungle vegetation on top. Think of smaller versions of those cast islands of um, Thailand, you know, where they did the Bond movies like that. Uh, The largest island, uh, Koror, is home to 15,000 people, which is 70% of the entire population (laughs) of Palau. So it's not a big place. And where is Palau? It's in Micronesia, so north of West Papua and southeast of the Philippines. And it's just a couple of degrees above the equator, so now we know where we are. And why would a nomad go there? Mostly for the diving, which oh. is supposed to be absolutely spectacular. And, of course, and one of its main claims to fame is the pristine environment. Well, let's find out about that now. Given this is the first thing that you need to do when you arrive in Palau, let's start with the story of how four women helped establish a pledge that visitors need to sign in their passport, agreeing to act in an ecologically responsible way on the island. And that's for the sake of future generations of Palauans. Children of Palau, I take this pledge. To preserve and protect your beautiful and unique island home. I vow to tread lightly, act kindly and explore mindfully. I shall not take what is not given. I shall not harm what does not harm me. The only footprints I shall leave are those that will wash away. Yeah, that is the Palau Pledge and visitors are required to sign an environmental pledge that is stamped literally into their passports, promising to act, as you heard there, respectfully and without damaging ecosystems. We have with us, Phil, the co-founder of the Palau Pledge. Please meet Laura. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Who wrote the pledge? The pledge was actually written by, uh, in conjunction with the children of Palau. So um, we asked the children of Palau how they wanted visitors to um, treat and respect their country whilst they were there. And they wrote these beautiful, heartwarming letters uh, to the visitors, asking them for their help in preserving and protecting their environmental and cultural future. So um, we then synthesized those letters and used the words that came out of those letters and incorporated the, the sentiment and some of those words into the Palau Pledge wording. Beautiful. They are beautiful words. So what was the, you know, you were obviously facing a, a problem from visitors that were coming? Yes. And um, for those listeners that, that, that don't know, you know, Palau is uh, the 16th smallest country in the world. Uh, it has a population of 20,000 people um, and uh, it's in the Pacific. And um, I came here actually uh, as a visitor in 2015 uh, and a long term visitor. My husband uh, was posted here by the Royal Australian Navy. And so uh, my observation just as a visitor was that other visitors um, weren't respecting Palau allows very ancient culture of conservation, which is actually enshrined 
into their laws. And so I saw visitors, um, yeah, not respecting the laws and not respecting uh, Palawan culture. And I, as a visitor, felt moved to to actually try and take action um, about this. And so joined forces with a group of incredible Palawan women and other uh, sort of expat visitors who wanted to create something that would help visitors understand these really important tenets of environmental stewardship that have been in Palauan culture for centuries. And that's how the Palau Pledge idea was was first sort of born. Give us an example of some of these, you know, cultural tenets, as you say. Um, well, the modern day interpretation um, of these cultural tenets, um, I'll just talk about them first, um, is like, for example, Palau was the first country in the world to have a nuclear-free constitution. And it was the women of Palau that stood up to uh, much larger governments and said, you will not test nuclear weapons in our waters. And at that time, it was a very risky move for Palau um, because of the amount of, you know, subsidies and, and, um, and aid that was, is needed in, uh, in a sort of small developing country. They were the first country in the world to declare their waters a national shark sanctuary. They were the first country in the world to have, um, well, they've got the largest percentage of protected maritime territory in the world. So the Palau National Marine Sanctuary, uh, which covers an area the sort of the size of France, which is the whole uh, exclusive economic zone of Palau. Eighty um, percent of that zone is actually protected by law. So that was another world first. And I guess this is all based on the Palauans' understanding of, you know, you have to survive in nature. Nature is the root of all of your survival. So it's difficult, I think, sometimes to explain. Um, and, you know, but, but basically, Palauans don't separate cons- like nature from themselves. Personally, as a non-Palauan, I think that we all could learn a lot from that. Has anybody ever turned up and A, been surprised that they have to sign in their passport and then got back on the plane and gone home? <laughs> so no, <laughs> no, no, nobody's, nobody's gone on, got on the plane and gone home. But I think, um, you know, when, when the Palau Pledge first, you know, was launched, I think there were people definitely turning up. We've spoken to some of the immigration officers and people have a lot of questions, you know, like, what is this? You know, it's the first time for me that I've ever had to sign my passport. I mean, it's not actually, you know, you, you have to question it because it's it's a legal document that is issued by, you know, your home country's government. So actually to sign my name in my passport, you know, it's like that's a very official thing that we're asking people to do. But because it is the official arrival stamp of the Republic of Palau, um, and it is a requirement by law here to do that, you know, people, when they read it, because it actually is printed in six different languages, so um, people understand it in their own language. And when they read it, they come to understand why it exists and the purpose of it. And so therefore, you know, if they do have questions, they're very easily answered because this is to preserve and protect the children of Palau's future. Well, people love it. You have won a swag of gongs around the world. You've got support from, you know, big names like Leonardo DiCaprio and even the Rolling Stones are fans of the Palau Pledge. <laughs> how, how do you become a, like, I'd love to know that connection between the Stones, you know, such a huge <laughs> band and the Palau it's Pledge. Huge. 
Uh, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people know Palau because way before the Palau pledge, um, you know, Palau was already making headlines um, on the global news for its culture of conservation, um, the shark sanctuary, the uh, you know, the nuclear-free constitution, Palau National Marine Sanctuary, all of these things sort of mark Palau out as very, very special in the world. Um, so when it came to the Palau pledge, um, if, I mean, the specific story about the stones is that Ronnie Wood's son, Ty Wood, um, is an ocean activist himself. And, you know, he came to know of Palau and, and what we're doing. And, you know, it was it was very natural because the stones are involved in a lot of um, environmental sort of activism um, uh, through various causes that they support. So it was a natural alignment between, between you know, the Palau pledge and, and, and um, you know, people like the Rolling Stones. But even with Leonardo DiCaprio, Dame Ellen MacArthur, John Kerry, you know, Queen Noor of Jordan, all of these, all of these people, some of whom have actually never set foot in Palau, they all understand that this is, this is about Palau's future and Palauan's children's future. But actually, it's a wider message for the world. Because if we don't protect our environment like Palau has always done, then our children worldwide are going to be suffering some severe consequences. And we're already seeing that. So if you take that message and they wanted to uh, take that message and amplify it through their own profiles, that's what Palau is giving them a voice to do. It's actually not just about the children of Palau, but it's about the children of the world. Well, I hope they enjoy the podcast and that we do it justice. So once That's it's right. once it's finished, Laura, we'll send it along and please share it with all 20,000. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone will be listening avidly. But one thing I just wanted to add is that um, what is, I guess, a great source of pride for Palau is that Hawaii, New Zealand um, and uh, the Philippines and, and hopefully soon Bhutan are all adopting versions of the Palau Pledge based on their own culture of conservation. And they're asking visitors to, to sign these versions. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this around the world because this is an idea that Palau created, but that um, resonates with people across the planet. So, yeah, we're really hoping that um, that more and more countries and destinations actually take on what Palau has led the world in. Yeah, well, here, here. And congratulations, great work. And I think we should finish this off by playing the Palau Pledge once more. It's Children of Palau, I take this pledge. To preserve and protect your beautiful and unique island home. I vow to tread lightly, act kindly and explore mindfully. I shall not take what is not given. I shall not harm what does not harm me. The only footprints I shall leave are those that will wash away. Phil, we've signed the pledge. We're ready to go. Are you ready to go? Yeah, ready. Signed it. Let's begin our experience like Stephen. This is exactly how I would like to do Palau. He went kayaking, right? Mm. But just with the trusty kayak, a tent, five days of food. Yeah, man. They're just one of those places that uh, tourists aren't going a lot to, you know, but when you start to see pictures of them and you start to read about them, it's just this really amazing landscape that just invites that sort of adventure and, and invites you to spend some real time instead of just doing that sort of one day boat trip from Karor into the Jellyfish Lake and back. Uh, and so that's, I really thought, okay, how can I spend as much time as possible in this area? And the obvious answer seemed to be to get a tent, a kayak and some food and just hang out for a few days. But totally remote, on your own, five days. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's there. It, there is some tourism there, right? Uh, it's fairly easy for Korean and I think now Chinese and Japanese to get there as well. And so you do have these these sort of one day boat trips that are going in speedboats from the capital city, Karor, down to Jellyfish Lake, doing the snorkeling, going back. There's a little bit of scuba diving. So I think if there had been a real crazy emergency, if I had waited long enough, somebody would have driven past and I would have signaled to him, you know. But the whole idea of doing it was that I wanted to be somewhere a little bit alone, a little bit of solitude, just me and nature. Uh, and so for that, it was perfect. You know, I put up a tent on a beach and used that as my home base for the whole time. And just every day hopped in the kayak, paddled somewhere beautiful, went swimming and snorkeling and, and all these things, and then went back at night and slept in the tent. How, yeah. how pristine was the environment? Uh, you know, there's a couple of islands that, that are sort of the obvious tour boat stopping off points. And for these, there's, um, a little bit of infrastructure built up a little bit of trash, but as soon as you get away from those, there's just nothing, you know, there's nothing man-made. Uh, even there's one Island that the the TV show survivor was filmed on, it must've been eight years ago now or 10 years ago or something. But even to go on that island, there's like some ruins of uh, the communities that once lived there ages and ages ago. And that's all you can see. And, and this is a place that has seen a lot of human impact, you know, but it's just so remote that there's not anybody visiting now. And most of the time, people really care about the environment and are cleaning these things and taking care of it. Now, listen, you've mentioned Jellyfish Lake a couple of times, and I know it's, you know, it's an obvious thing that people go for. Um, I really hate jellyfish. So why would you go there? <laughs> Well, but why do you hate jellyfish? It's because you're afraid that they're going to sting you, right? And well, so that's what's so I'm from Australia, mate. Uh, they really do sting you here when you do. No, I, I understand, you know, that there are plenty that don't, but they're just rubbery. Yeah, I tell you what, it's a really weird feeling because you they, they move throughout the lake throughout the day back and forth, right? They follow the sun across the lake and, and harvest the, the nutrients. And so you sort of start swimming and you, you swim and there's none and then there's five and 10 and 20, but suddenly there's like hundreds and thousands. And it's really, frankly, pretty peculiar because logically you understand that these particular jellyfish in this particular lake are not going to sting you, right? Because they've lost the ability to really do so. And so logically you, you realize that you're not in any danger, but when you're swimming and you're surrounded by thousands of these little golden jellyfish, every way that you look, they're, they're, you know, blocking out the sun from the top and they, you can see them all the way down to the depths of your vision at the bottom. It is a peculiar and somewhat frightening feeling, but at the same time, it's just so otherworldly that how can you not do it and, and sort of get a kick out of it? So they, they weren't uh, jellyfish that sting you, obviously. Well, so they are a type that normally will sting you. Uh, it's a golden jellyfish is what they're called. But they've this, this lake has been cut off from the sea for so long. It's not actually cut off. There's a small bit of flow in and out every day, but not enough for, for predators to come in, which is the important part. And so just through generations and generations and generations of, of the species living in this lake, they've eventually lost the ability to really sting. And so some people who, are, who have really sensitive skin say that if you get in, they'll, they'll feel a little bit of tingling when they get uh, really close to a lot of them. But for most people, you won't notice anything because they just don't have the ability physically to do that anymore because it's evolved out of them. All right. Some other parts that you went to as well. I mean, apart from the isolation, lots of mangrove swamps, but what else is there? Uh, you, you did a fair bit of, of uh, snorkeling. The thing that – and I want to talk to you about scuba diving as well because I know there are some World War II wrecks around there as well, right? Palau is really quite large, you know, just in terms of how, how spread out it is. Uh, and the rock islands is just one part of a very spread out country. And even in the rock islands, there's the whole of Palau is kind of a protected it's, there's an outer reef that protects a lot of the reef inside. 
Um, and so to be inside, there's a couple of places where there's just these massive drop-offs, these huge coral gardens. Uh, there's a few places where you can see, like you'll, you'll be, uh, you'll be anchored to the reef. And, and as you watch just there's sharks swimming past beyond the drop-off, there's, there's these huge, uh, fish that are just in massive, massive communities, massive schools. So the, the wildlife itself is incredible. And then, yeah, there was a lot of fighting during World War II. And so there's a, a couple of boats. There's a Japanese um, Zero, I think it's called, fighter plane that is within snorkeling distance. I paddled out to it one day and, and just snorkeled around it for a while. Anywhere that you go in the country, you can find this. Any of the groups of islands, even nearby the capital city, you could go for a couple hours and uh, scuba one of these and then get back to the city. And what about the people themselves there as well? Obviously, you know, they don't have massive amounts of interaction with the outside world. As you say, you know, tourism is sort of pretty low level there. Yeah, there isn't a ton of tourism, but also it was after World War II, it became a U.S. trust territory. And so Palauans are allowed to go work in the U.S. And quite a few people have done so, have family that have done so. Uh, And so despite it being so remote, it's really not uncommon for these guys to go to Guam, to go to the U.S., to do whatever. Uh, And so it's really convenient as a tourist, right? Because everybody speaks native English. Um, There's a lot of cultural touch points. Every time that I was in Karor, I used Karor as a base. And every time that I was in Karor, met a... It's just the, the weirdest like parts of society, right? I met a couple of missionaries, local missionaries that were traveling out to the islands to, to try and convert people. And obviously there's internationals that live and work there in the scuba sector. Um, I was at dinner with a couple of people I met one time and the queen of Palau happened to come into the restaurant. So they introduced me to the queen of Palau. You know? <laughs> and so it's, it's a very accessible society and everybody's really friendly. And as a, as a native English speaker, you can talk to, to legitimately anybody um, because it's just so, so international in that sense. Hey, when you get introduced to the queen, did you call it her majesty or what was the protocol? Uh, you know, nobody really explained that to me. And it was a little bit awkward because I had no, like, <laughs> I'm an American, you know, we don't have these, these ideas. Um, and so I just tried to be as polite as possible and friendly and, oh, wow, it's so nice to meet you. And she said, talk to us, or she stood at the side of the table and talked to us for a minute or two and then had something better to do, you know, just this <laughs> sort of like, wait, what just happened? This is another place we have to put on the list, Phil, but for those people that aren't feeling as adventurous as as you were, and, you know, tent, five days of food, kayaks, snorkel. Don't be put off by that. There are places that you can go that has infrastructure. Yeah, well, so Karor is a fairly modern city, you know. There's uh, plenty of, of sort of tourist-oriented hotels. There are plenty of restaurants you can get Indian food or fresh fish or American burgers or whatever. Uh, so it's certainly not a place that you have to go and, and suffer the whole time and really put yourself through hardship. But, you know, if you're going to go all the way to the middle of the Pacific, it seems like the kind of place that you should be pushing just that little bit further and having a proper adventure too while you're there. A great way to experience Palau. Absolutely perfect. We'll have a link to his story in show notes, but some travel news, Phil. 
Uh, great news from Will Domatz first. Our illustrious leader, the General Manager Chris Noble, has been appointed to the board of the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund. The ATCF is a non-profit that provides funding to uh, highlight projects that protect the cultural and natural resources which underpin the adventure tourism industry. Yep. Uh, their mission is to directly fund local projects engaged in the conservation of unique natural and cultural resources of adventure travel destinations. Congratulations, Chris. Well done. Bring it on. That's a really worthy thing to be involved in. Look, at the time of recording this episode, there was trouble in Hong Kong, big trouble. For the uh, 11th weekend in a row, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets to defend their uh, democracy and democratic rights. Tourism to Hong Kong's fallen off a cliff. It's you know, collapsed. No, no surprise. surprise. Yeah. But there are still some people visiting. So, you know, is it safe? Um, obviously, stay away from any protests. In fact, you will void your insurance uh, cover if you deliberately join in or stay near a protest and you're injured. So don't go and watch. Get well away from the area. Check with your airline about their plans if the airport is closed again, because it has been a couple of times. Misconnections, delays and cancellations are unlikely to be covered now that the process are a known event. Uh, unless, of course, you bought your insurance cover before the unrest began. And does that include you? Because <laughs> you're going through Hong Kong. I am an idiot. I'm go- I booked a ticket. I'm going to London through Hong Kong, but I haven't got my travel insurance yet. So if my flight's cancelled... No, you're on your own. Flip. (laughs) (laughs) Don't laugh. I could be stranded. (laughs) I'll not make it. But look, the good thing is, as I understand it, I mean, if you stay airside, you're not going to get involved in the protests because obviously they can't get through the security screening. So they're all in like the arrivals hall. So Yeah, but you said they closed the airport. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, it hasn't been closed for a while. Watch this space. All right, let's move on. A couple of adventurous types who were kayaking in waters around Alaska have had a lucky escape when a glacier they were near suddenly broke off a huge chunk of carving, as it's known. This huge block of glacier hit the water and sprayed the kayakers with tons of water and chunks of ice and created a big wave that could have swamped them. Let's just have a quick listen. We keep hearing calving happening, big splashes, and sounds like a gunshot going off. We're going to try to get over to where we think it's happening. Man, when that whole thing goes, oh, here we go. Oh, oh. oh my God. Oh, my God. Oh my God, we're lucky to be alive right now. (laughs) They were lucky to be alive. That footage is in show notes and it is incredible. I know, that is a massive wave that goes over the top of them. Anyway, there you are. You finished? I'm done. I didn't mean that negatively. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we started this episode with the Palau Pledge. What is it and how it began? Well, Kate has created a pledge of her own that she wants travellers to take before heading overseas and riding scooters without helmets. Now, this is specifically, I guess, in Southeast Asia. She was inspired to do so after the death of her sister, Nicole, who was involved in a crash in Thailand. Oh, Nicole. She was one of a kind. Um, That's one way of putting it. Uh, So vibrant and bubbly. You um, 
you'd always hear Nicole before you could see her. She had a very loud voice um, and uh, she wanted to put that voice to good use. Um, She was studying to become a sports journalist. You know, her dream was to be on, you know, Channel 9, reading the sports and most especially rugby league. Her passion for that was beyond measure. But she did grow up as the most um, wonderful, talented dancer, especially, um, you know, in ballet. So she danced um, over in the New Zealand ballet and over in Tokyo Disney. She was a character I mean, Disneyland over there and just lived a really full, rich life. But she certainly showed up every day, living it um, to the fullest and loved, loved traveling. So she'd um, been around America and did like six weeks to Europe on her own when, um, you know, just uh, probably she was about 22 years old. Um, And after, you know, she worked on the Channel 9 footy show and uh, they finally got a break at the end of the year. So she got her lovely partner Jamie I think she got like a kudo voucher or something for a few nights away in um, Koh Samui in Thailand they booked themselves off there and and off she went so that was uh that was October 2012. And how cool that she had this really soft delicate dancer side to her and then the (laughs) grunts yeah it would be hilarious like Nicole would be like especially when she was younger and like sometimes she'd be like at a dance at Steadford up on stage with her dainty little feet doing a ballet dance like you know winning and blowing everyone away like oh isn't she lovely and then like that night would be the football and she'd be there in a jersey standing on her seat screaming at like lungs out and getting right into it and just like you know like one of the boys and uh that was why I think she left such an um an imprint on so many people that she met because she was so unique and so talented and you know she if she didn't like something she wouldn't put effort towards it I can't say school was her favorite thing in the world <laughs> um but uh you know she did work really hard with with her studies and once she found her groove with something like journalism and uh you know she was the type that you know our dog Cooper the Labradoodle we had this we have this gorgeous 13 year old Labradoodle and her and him have this most incredible bond and she cried once over his haircut. It wasn't good enough. And she wrote the woman a letter next time saying, if you cut his hair like that again, I will sue you. <laughs> that was my sister. She didn't mix the words. Put it that way. Yeah, I love her. And and so did Jamie. So she went to, to Thailand with Jamie and obviously there was a lifelong commitment there. They'd been discussing getting married and who they would have in their, in their bridal party. And then within hours of that discussion, his world changed and certainly your world. Um, What happened to Nick? Yeah. So, I mean, they were just having a really nice quiet dinner. I think it was their last night in Koh Samui. Um, So just had a quiet dinner and thought, oh, you know, we'll we'll, we'll make our way back to the hotel, which was like a kilometre down the road. So they jump on a bike, you know, a moped kind of thing, like so many people do when they're over in these Asian countries. And uh, yeah, didn't think to put a helmet on. I mean, why do you need to do that? No one else has a helmet on that I really see. So they were turning into the driveway of the hotel, just metres from safety. And Jamie went to turn right. And then a local rider on the wrong side of the road tried to cut them off. Um, Nicole pretty much took the the full impact of that um, crash. So the first I heard of it was um, about 3.30 in the morning. I was at my boyfriend's at the time's place and mum, like, you know, I hear your phone vibrate. And, and at that hour, I just remember thinking, I want to ignore this. This is just a friend being like a pest at this hour because <laughs> it was a Friday night at Sunday morning. I'm thinking someone's had too big of a night. And then when I kind of fumbled for it and saw it was mum, immediately like my stomach dropped because I just knew I'm like, why is mum calling me at 3.30 in the morning? And 
the first word she kind of said, you know, this has been in a serious accident in Thailand. Um, she's being rushed into surgery with serious head injuries. And immediately, actually, the first thing she kind of said, I think she was trying to play it cool and, and trying to stay positive and not stress it out too much. She was like, just find her travel insurance, like get her details. We need those. But then right at the end, she was just like, just pray to God she survives. And that those words were when I was like, this this is serious and my world, you know, just completely spun. And then it was a, a few hours later, I kind of was like, Farah, I better go back to be with mum and dad. I went and watched the sunrise. I prayed my little heart out and Nicole would be okay. Um, came back and I went to drive home to mum and dad and I remember my phone started ringing again and I thought it's probably mum just saying, you know, they need something to take to Thailand with them because mum and dad immediately booked flights to be at Nicole's side. But I picked up the phone and thank God I wasn't driving at the time. I was just about to be. Mum just, yeah, screamed like she's dead. And oh. um, I pretty much fell out of the car. And that was that was my world shattering in, in that moment in a way I never saw coming. You know, it was just so hard to comprehend. Like never again would I see her. And instantly all those sister moments, like I was just a few months away from turning 21 and I'd always look forward to hearing her 21st speech because she was so funny and so good at, you know, talking and all that. I'm like, she would have just tore me to shreds in the most loving way in that speech or, you know, um, just like the wedding, like being my bridesmaid at my, on my wedding day, all those little moments that you reserve, especially for a sister to have them stolen from me and trying to process that it was, um, and it still is. I still get swept away in moments where it's like, wow, like, like I can't turn back time and bring Nicole back home safely. But with an Australian tourist dying over in Southeast Asia every 17 hours, on average, there is something I've got to do because I can't sit back and have a family waking up or receiving that same phone call that my family did every 17 hours. Like, So to honour your sister, what did you set up? So we did establish the Nicole Fitzsimons Foundation. Um, quite soon after her death, we kind of launched her memorial in November 2012 because she did pass in October 2012. And, um, yeah, from there, the main focus is like a travel safety campaign as, um, you know, as I began researching into how many other poor families had suffered what we've been through and discovered these alarming statistics, I looked at this video footage that we have of Nicole's accident and I'm like, this can save a life, you know, to see such a young, vibrant, beautiful life taken before your eyes in a split second. Um, you know, it is, it's a foot, it's an image that stays with you. And I now with over, you know, I've reached over a hundred thousand year 11 and 12 high school students with this footage, their faces say it all. You know, I left a corporate job to pursue this full time, um, in March, 2013. And so many people thought I was crazy for doing so. And the only thing more crazy to me was to sit back and, and not try to do something to save um, another family from this. And uh, I knew that through being Nicole's little sister and being willing to be vulnerable enough to share what it's like to lose someone so young and so suddenly, these kids, yeah, they've got their tough exterior and they think they're cool and they're all trying to impress each other. But at the end of the day, they're human beings with hearts and families and loved ones of their own. And if you are able to, you know, I really believe people hear you on the level that you speak to them. So I was like, if I can speak to them from my heart and share some of this footage and as well as just some practical tips of what they can do to better prepare for that trip and to be more mindful overseas and to at least protect themselves financially with travel insurance, which was a godsend for my family, you know, it, it, um, 
Uh, like, you know, I couldn't go and, and, and change Thailand, nor do I have no right to, but I, I can change the mentality that we are taking overseas. So I did start um, a helmet pledge campaign um, and kind of met the pledge is that I will always wear a helmet when riding a scooter, you know, no matter where I am in the world. If I'm getting on a motorbike, I'm wearing a helmet. And kind of now after the kids have watched my talk and presentation, um, they can go on this site like NicoleFitzsimons.com forward slash pledge and kind of take that pledge to um, lead by example and to take their safety seriously no matter where they are in the world but most especially when they're on the roads um, overseas and most especially Southeast Asia. There was no one who was more worthy of life than Nicole and it still got taken from her because of a split second decision to put safety second and it just cannot. The concrete's just as hard no matter where you are in the world. We'll have a link to the Nicole Fitzsimons Foundation which includes details on the pledge and a link to Kate herself in show notes. She's quite the woman. She not only speaks to students here in Australia but in the US sharing her journey alongside stress and anxiety reduction techniques. Yeah, can I just tell you something about motorcycle claims that come out of Southeast Asia and not the World Namas brand but another brand under our group. Uh, I did some investigations, this would be about a year, 18 months ago now, and they reject 66% of motorcycle-related claims out of Bali for four reasons. One of them is you're not wearing a helmet, major one. Second one is you're not licensed. You do need a license to ride a motorbike. And the third one is you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The fourth one, the unhappy trifecta, all of the above. Yeah, right. So, you know. All right, back to Palau and Sam, who runs the site Worldwide Wilbur, which is about what, Sam? Worldwide Wilbur is a travel blog that is documenting, documenting my mission to visit every country in the world. Ah, that's a that's a more common uh, mission than you would um, believe. Lots of people are trying to do that. And how how hard yeah. is it? Good on you, Phil. Oh, yeah, no, no, so no, no, no. Sorry, it's Sam, great. it's not oh, no, you. No, no, no um, that's not what I mean. You know what? I'm cancelling the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great chat, Sam. We'll put a link to show notes. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not what I meant. I meant that it's a worthy ambition to try and do. Lots of people have that ambition. Yeah. But it's not easy to do. You know, I think it's easier today than at any time in, in the history of the world. Um, travel is becoming easier and borders are opening up more so than ever before. Um, there's always going to be a few countries that are going to be extremely difficult, but there's less and less of those uh, each year. Yeah. Which one have you had the most trouble getting into? Yeah, I don't think I've had, I haven't had trouble getting into any yet, but to be honest, I'm at 108 right now and there's 196 countries in the world. So as you can imagine, people tend to want to go to the nice places first. Um, So, you know, I've kind of been doing that. Um, I haven't gone out of my way to get to uh, Libya or the Central African Republic or Somalia or any other places where there's a chance of getting shot. So I haven't had any problems yet, but I know there are a few countries that will be difficult. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Well, Phil, um, when we just before we chatted to you, Phil said that he really enjoys your site. It's full of lots of factual information. And I like the way you write too. It's very easy to read. Oh, thank you. Back on track. <laughs> We're back on track. Nice save, Kim. Yeah, look, I've got you back. I've got you back. And yours too, Sam. Now, you have been, as part of this quest um, to visit all the countries in the world, you've been to Palau. How did you find yes. it? I thought it was lovely. Um, you know, I live in Hawaii, so I'm, I'm pretty 
used to living in tropical paradises and I'm probably a pretty harsh judge of uh, tropical island countries. Um, I, I often go on trips and I go to countries where I'm, I've been recommended a beach destination. All the, you know, I hear all oh, this beach is amazing. You got to go see it. And I get there and I think, you know, Oh, this beach is crap. I mean, I, I got five beaches like down the street from my house better than this. So I'm, I'm often disappointed when I go to these, uh, tropical beach destinations, but I was not disappointed with Palau. Palau is absolutely gorgeous it's they've really done a good job of protecting nature there and the diving and snorkeling and kayaking is just fantastic well palau has a lot in common with hawaii or vice versa because i think hawaii is about to take the same or make the create the same kind of pledge that palau does to make sure that people visit and travel sustainably and look after the environment Yes, that that would be wonderful if they did that. I I think they've taken the step of adding, I think a short video is now played when people fly into Hawaii from the government that uh, just goes over some really basic tourist safety and um, how to uh, protect the environment type things. And and I know that Hawaii is also banned non-reef safe sunscreen starting uh, next year i think you would recommend palau then to to anyone that's sort of grown up around the areas of you know pristine beaches white sand and and to be specific palau palau actually uh the main island of palau where you'd be staying when you go there doesn't actually have any beaches it has mangroves um but you can easily get a boat ride out to one of the little rock islands that has a beach. And those beaches are, you know, th- those little tiny islands all around the main island in Palau are uninhabited. And uh, it, when you come in to go snorkeling or diving or kayaking, you have to buy a permit. And that permit uh, allows you access to all those islands. And you can even spend the night on one if you get one of the dive companies to drop you off and leave you there. You can throw up your tent and spend the night on a gorgeous, pristine beach all to yourself. Um, during your yeah. diving, did you come across any of the World War II history? Yes, we did. We dived uh, onto a large Japanese tanker that was hit with, I think, an aerial bomb. And you could see exactly where it hit. The metal was all bent back in, a, in like an explosive pattern. It was sitting at about 60 or 70 feet. Amazing. Huge, huge ship. I I can't remember how many feet long, but uh, really big and um, really interesting to see that. And then there's so many of those ships uh, all around Palau. We will share your link in show notes to the things that you can do in Palau and also to Worldwide Wilbur. But What's, what would your advice be to somebody? Oh, go because it is a, well, they build themselves as the pristine paradise of Palau, and, and it's exactly correct. It's no exaggeration. It's got the best scuba diving in the Pacific, possibly. Uh, I think the only other place that would really rival it is maybe Fiji. The uh, dive companies are first rate and professional. There's nice uh, resort hotels. Um, the people are friendly. You know, it's a small town atmosphere. You feel very safe walking around. 
you know, there's everything is really enjoyable there and um, no negatives uh, to detract from going. What's the feel like there, though? I mean, is it you know, is it like Fijian sort of village feel, or is it because of where it's placed? It's not that far from the Philippines, and you know, the original sort of Palauans came from Southeast Asia. Does it have an Asian feel or a Pacific feel? I felt like it had more of an Asian feel than a Pacific feel. The restaurants, the bright lights of downtown. Everything had an Asian feel to it. But, of course, the people are, uh, you know, Pacific Islanders. But there are a lot of Asian folks living there. There are a lot of guest workers from the Philippines working there. In fact, almost all the waiters and waitresses and people that you work with in the hospitality industry are from the Philippines. So, yeah, there's definitely an Asian feel there. Thank you. A link to the site in show notes. Uh, By the way, we now have our own Facebook group. Search for the World Nomads podcast. We'd love you to join us in sharing the stories of travel. And there's extra info there on the podcasts and our guests and destinations. Yeah, that's right. A bit of behind-the-scenes stuff. We'll get around to getting some of that on there as well. You can reach out to us uh, on the Facebook group or email us at podcast at worldnomads.com. And so you don't miss out on an episode, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And we appreciate if you could also tell your friends about us too. Yeah, remember this, rate, share, subscribe. (laughs) Next week, our amazing nomad is Nomadic Matt. Hey, Nomadic Matt. Yep, sharing, or not share. well, yeah, he's sharing and chatting about his book release and his organisation Flight, working with students in underserved communities to promote the benefits of travel, education and cultural awareness by funding overseas educational programmes. So we'll see you then. Okay, bye. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.